Welcome to the New Books Network. Hi, everybody, and welcome to New Books in History, a channel on the New Books Network. My name is Lane Davis, and today I have the pleasure of talking with Dr. Robert Elder. He is Assistant Professor of History at Baylor University and the author of Calhoun, American Heretic, that's releasing on February 16th, 2021 from Basic Books. Dr. Elder, thanks so much for taking some time to talk with us today, and congrats on the publication of the book. Hey, thanks, Lane. Great to be here. So uh, while I'm, I'm sure that most of our listeners are probably familiar with John C. Calhoun, I'm, I'm cognizant that, that we have folks from all over the world who may not be as uh, deeply uh, informed on the intricacies of American statesmanship in the 19th century. And so why don't you just give us the brief uh, sort of Wikipedia entry for who John Calhoun was and, and then, then tell us about um, how did you come to write about him? Sure. Well, um, so Calhoun is is uh, one of the more influential uh, figures in American history. Uh, certainly, he's one of the primary figures in 19th century American history. Um, he was uh, he had a very long career in American politics uh, before the Civil War. Uh, he's born in South Carolina, uh, right as the American Revolution is end uh, is ending. He's elected to Congress right uh, as the War of 1812 uh, starts, and he plays a primary role uh, as one of the so-called war hawks, um, kind of holding the country together and trying to, uh, to, to get Congress to fund the war effort. Um, and he, he's a, uh, at the beginning of his career, he is a, a passionate uh, nationalist. He, he identifies with Thomas Jefferson's um, notions of American democracy. He, he would, throughout his life, identify himself as a Jeffersonian. Um, but during the during and after the War of eighteen twelve, he carves out an identity as a really uh, aggressive nationalist who wants to uh, prepare the country to survive another attack from a country like Great Britain, and also to expand its influence across the. The, the North American continent. So hmm. as a young politician, he, uh, he advocates, uh, brings for, forward bills for things like internal improvements, a national system of roads and canals. And he's a primary supporter of the, of the uh, second national bank, hmm. uh, even though he's a Jeffersonian. Um, and he's a supporter of, of the, uh, 1816 tariff, which um, eventually comes back to haunt him. That becomes the the primary issue that his political career fractures uh, against Andrew Jackson on Mm -hmm. in 1828. And then uh, he goes on to become vice president under both John Quincy Adams in 1824 and then Andrew Jackson in 1828, which is a feat that uh, no other politician in American politics has accomplished. and then uh, after the nullification crisis, which maybe we'll, we'll talk about a little later, um, his split with Jackson, he comes back into the U.S. Senate for, as a senator from South Carolina. And that's where he spends most of the rest of his career, uh, with the exception of one year as John Tyler's secretary of state. Um, and Calhoun is probably famous for two things. I mean, he's famous 
for his role in the nullification crisis and the constitutional theories that he begins working out there um, and that he continues to work out for the rest of his life and kind of sums up at the end of his life in uh, two major uh, treatises on government that he publishes uh, posthumously. And and he's famous for his role as perhaps the primary defender of slavery in the uh, pre-Civil War uh, American um, sphere of politics. Um, So he's famous for his 1837 speech in which he argues that slavery is a positive good uh, for uh, in, in a democratic society, and that's a that's an argument that was uh, shocking at the time, still so- shocking today, and and yet it becomes kind of the de facto uh, position for much of the American South by the Civil War, and he dies in 1850. Um, uh, right as the the kind of crisis over slavery is starting to to boil over, um, and so he doesn't he doesn't live to see the Civil War or anything like that. Although we do associate him strongly with that and and with the Confederacy. Right. So I, I I'm interested in what kind of led you to him. Uh, but let me ask the question like this. So in, in your preface, you you. Give us a brief little historiography of how previous historians um, have portrayed Calhoun. And uh, Richard Hofstadter is, of course, always good for a quote. And I yeah. think um, I think his view seems to, to sum up the majority. And you quote him as saying, and this is his quote, Calhoun was a minority spokesman in a democracy, a particularist in an age of nationalism, a slaveholder in an age of advancing liberties, and an agrarian in a furiously capitalistic country. Quite understandably, he developed a certain perversity of mind, end quote. Why did you feel that this view of Calhoun needed a reappraisal, and why was now the right time to dive into such a project for you? Yeah, so um, I could go, you know, I can... I give several of those sorts of quotes in the preface where I kind of showed that the, the view of Calhoun over the past 50 years, uh, for sure, has been of somebody who is kind of uh, fundamentally opposed to the flow of history, whatever mm-hmm. that is, or however mm-hmm. we conceive of that. And um, one of the things that led me to write the book is that uh, the last biography of Calhoun was published about 30 years ago now, or uh, 28 years ago, uh, to be exact. And uh, our understanding of the American South, of slavery and its relationship to capitalism in the modern world, um, all of the, uh, our understanding of the United States in international context, uh, all of these things have changed dramatically in terms of the scholarship uh, that is available and that, that I was familiar with. And I really saw an opportunity when I was reading these older um, biographies of Calhoun to uh, portray him as somebody who is fundamentally in tune with all the currents of his world and whose arguments are aimed at uh, at adapting to those currents. So, mm-hmm. so, you know, his arguments about slavery are that it's a fundamentally modern institution um, that's suited for the modern world. And he sees his constitutional theories as adapting the American constitution to new circumstances. So he's, uh, I wanted to portray him as a much more, um, 
uh, modern figure than we might like to think, because mm-hmm. I, I think part of our image of him as backwards looking is an effort to disassociate him from ourselves, uh, from from the modern uh, American nation. And then the the event, the most immediate event that made me uh, write the book was actually uh, after the the horrific shootings in Charleston in 2015. Mm-hmm. Uh, soon after the, those shootings at Mother Emanuel Church, um, people began connecting issues of uh, you know protests over racial justice uh, to Calhoun's legacy. So. In Charleston, there were protests about a monument there. Um, And then at at Yale University, there were protests over a college named for Calhoun there. And uh, I was, you know, I feel that one of a a historian's jobs is to explain the past to the present. And I felt like the, what we had about Calhoun was not adequate to that task at a moment Mm -hmm. when people were intensely interested in his legacy again. Well, your book certainly succeeds in that way for sure. Um, let's dive into to some of the particulars then of Calhoun's life. Um, you say early in the book that that the young John Calhoun received a variety of educations as a young man. He had a kind of classical education, an outdoors education, a formal education at Yale, uh, but also that slavery uh, was a kind of education for him and that deeply formed him. Um, and I, I found this idea of multiple educations really fascinating. Can, can you talk a bit about that and how you how you understood these educations as formative for Calhoun? Yeah. So so one of the things I wanted to do in the book was I, I thought of it as an intellectual biography in the sense that uh, Calhoun's famously difficult in this regard because he never cites, very rarely cites his sources or influences or those things. So I, what I, what I tried to do was kind of reconstruct the environments in which he would have been educated. And one of those is this uh, backwoods classical academy run by his brother-in-law, a Presbyterian minister named Moses Waddell, where he would have learned ancient languages and read Polybius and Tacitus and all, all these other um, authors. And then, of course, there's his education at Yale and at the Litchfields, uh, the Litchfield uh, Law School, which was a very modern, forward-looking uh, law school, one of the first formal law schools in the United States. Um, and the, both of those places, what was interesting about Calhoun's um, time at those places is that he was coming from the back country of South Carolina as a convinced Jeffersonian Republican mm. going into the heart of the opposition, in effect, uh, the, the federal, the heart of federalist uh, New England. Mm. Um, and, and I think he did that because he understood that that was the sort of education he would need to achieve his ambitions, with, which already at that age were uh, very, uh, very ambitious, very large. Um, mm. And then the, the, the idea of slavery as an, as an education, uh, I think there's a couple different senses in, in which that works for Calhoun. And, and, you know, I kind of took that idea from Thomas Jefferson's descriptions of slavery as an education, which Jefferson meant, Jefferson lamented this, um, that, 
that many of his contemporaries were educated in a school of slavery that taught them to be tyrants. And um, there's this uh, fascinating period in Calhoun's life of about four years after his father dies and before he goes um, back to school to prepare to go to Yale uh, that we don't know that much about. He worked, uh, he helped his mother run his father's plantation for four years and um, he would have worked alongside enslaved people. That was pretty common in the up, the upcountry of South Carolina at the time. Um, but he never really talks about this period. Um, and uh, yet this is probably the period when he has the most extended contact uh, with enslaved people uh, of his entire life. <clears throat> and so I kind of you know, uh, try to imagine the sorts of lessons that Calhoun thought he learned, uh, from that, uh, from that experience, which even in the case of uh, people like Thomas Jefferson, who had this ethic of, uh, of observation empiricism, right? They're, they're influenced by this enlightenment, uh, uh, empiricism. And Jefferson thought that what he was, what he saw was that, Black people were naturally inferior to, to white people. And Calhoun, who was immersed in that same sort of education and sensibility, um, I think must have drawn some similar conclusions to that. And then the final thing is simply that Calhoun grew up in the, uh, in the upcountry of South Carolina during a time when cotton was transforming that part of the state. And um, it was it was bringing wealth and a, a degree of refinement and institutions. I mean, people were getting wealthy growing cotton in the in the late 1790s, early 1800s. And I think that implanted in Calhoun a a vision of slavery and cotton as forces of progress in his world. And uh, that that I think becomes important later uh, when he argues that it, that it's a positive good. Hmm. You noted his, his ambition that he had that very early on. Uh, he spends a couple of years in the South Carolina legislature, I think. And then, then he, uh, he's elected to Congress for the start of the 1811 term, <laughs> which is, you noted when we started this conversation, a pretty tense, uh, time in American history. Talk, talk about that. And how did that period influence Calhoun's views of government and how was he influential during that time? Yeah. So he, he doesn't have long in the South Carolina <clears throat> legislature, uh, just long enough though, to chair a committee that changed the South Carolina Constitution to institute universal white manhood suffrage, which made South Carolina one of the most progressive democracies uh, in the Western world at the time, not, not hmm. by our standards, uh, certainly. Uh, but I think that's important to understanding how Calhoun always thought of himself um, as a small D Democrat um, and, and a, uh, you know, part of Thomas Jefferson's um, legacy. Uh, yeah, he, he comes into, then he's elected to Congress, to, to the House of Representatives. He comes in with Henry Clay at this very tense moment um, where war with England and possibly with France is, is imminent. 
And Calhoun comes in as this very new political type, which was a a Jeffersonian nationalist or a, a, a Republican nationalist. Hmm. And and uh, his uh, he becomes part of this group known as the War Hawks, which included people like Henry Clay, who uh, who try to rally the national government, which um, against the against groups of both um, New England Federalists uh, who were opposed to the war and uh, other Republicans, people like John Randolph of Virginia, who are kind of the old old type of uh, Republican, very suspicious of any sort of standing army or taxes or any of those things. And Calhoun comes in and immediately begins uh, advocating really energetic uh, measures to fight the war, taxes, raising uh, raising an army, all sorts of things that had no precedent in kind of Republican uh, ideology at the time. Um, and uh, his efforts to do that and his, his kind of firsthand view of how of the shortcomings of how of how the United States almost loses the war because it doesn't have a functioning national government or a functioning military establishment. Those once the war is over, those shape how he approaches um, his uh, political aims. And and almost as soon as the war is over, he becomes uh, or right after the war is over, he becomes uh, Secretary of War. Uh, under Monroe. Monroe asks him into his cabinet. And uh, in that role, uh, Calhoun kind of transforms uh, the military establishment uh, of the United States, uh, including West Point. And at that time, at that time, the Secretary of War was in charge of a vast swath of the national budget, hmm. um, much, much larger even than than uh, than today, and it included things like uh, that today would un- be under the Bureau of Indian Affairs and the Department of Interior. All that was under Calhoun, and he really he centralized uh, the authority, the lines of authority uh, for the military under him in Washington. He brought all the heads of department, which, which had been scattered around the country, to Washington. So that there would be simple, direct lines of command, and he established uh, thousands of regulations so that the the military and the War Department would run like a modern bureaucracy. Um, he's really the figure that creates the War Department as a modern bureaucracy, which was happening uh, in other modernizing nations all over the world at the time, and 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 that's what Calhoun's role was. Hmm. Um, and, and even before, uh, you know, uh, I should mention that, uh, right before he goes into the war department, uh, he is, uh, he advocates and, and passes, gets past this really ambitious, um, program of internal improvements that James Madison, uh, vetoes and, uh, Calhoun is incredibly disappointed by that. It, it's kind of one of the turning points in his uh, career, but he could have been the author of, uh, he could easily have been the author of one of the largest 
kind of government uh, internal improvement spending programs in American history. Just uh, hmm. James Madison had overcome his constitutional scruples about it. You know, it, it's so fascinating that you're talking about this part, because this is one of the most fascinating parts of the book, because I, I always think of Calhoun, and I think probably a lot of people do, as as mainly a rhetorical figure, but he really had a knack for administration and just kind of bending bureaucracies to his rule, didn't he? Yeah, you really, you know, and he saw it as practice for the presidency, right? Mm-hmm. He, he wanted to prove that he had administrative ability uh, and and he did prove that. I mean, I think this feeds into why he becomes a, a presidential candidate in for the 1824 um, election. But yeah, he clearly has um, administrative uh, abilities far and beyond what, what some of the other folks who filled his role did at the time. Um, so yeah. Well, let's talk about that 1824 president, uh, presidency run then. So he he runs, but he fails, but he gets something else. He's elected vice president. Talk about that. Yeah, he uh, Calhoun is is um, uh, one of the popular candidates for president. And one of the, the strange thing about the 1824 election, of course, is that everybody after the collapse of the Federalist Party um after the War of 1812, they're all running as Republicans, as Jeffersonian Republicans, but there are you know several different types. And what Calhoun has to do in that election is um, he has a reputation as a very energetic nationalist, um, and yet in his own state back home in South Carolina and in the person of uh, William Crawford, who was uh, another one of the uh, candidates at the time, and who is the head or the candidate for the so-called radical Republicans, the state rights Republicans who looked back to uh, um, they looked back to 1798 and Thomas Jefferson's uh, Virginia and Kentucky resolutions, um, and and were totally opposed to Calhoun's nationalist programs. And Calhoun has to figure out how to kind of start um, uh, moving towards that wing of the party. And and, uh, it's during that presidential run that he begins uh, retreating or modulating his uh, nationalist arguments. And it's about this time, well, it's it's right at this time that that a second tariff is, uh, is... in the works about to be passed. And this tariff is uh, incredibly controversial back in South Carolina. Mm. Um, Many people view it as unconstitutional and are criticizing Calhoun because he had supported a tariff in 1816. And it was seen as a a form of kind of nationalist tyranny. And so Calhoun during that election begins this shift uh, very subtly uh, but he makes a visit to John Taylor of Caroline, who was kind of one of the one of the old guard of the states' rights movement um, during the during this election, in order to uh, get Taylor's endorsement, convince Taylor that he's not a, a a thoroughgoing nationalist, that he still has respect for uh, the division of power within the Constitution and states' rights. Um, but he does, he loses the, the election um, 
partly because nobody saw Andrew Jackson coming. (laughs) Mm -hmm. And Jackson simply swamps Calhoun in in most of the places where, like Pennsylvania, where Calhoun thought that he had a real, and did have a real chance. And then, of course, at at the last moment, when you have this dramatic, um, uh, uh, not really a tie, but the election ends going into the House of Representatives under uh, the 12th Amendment. Um, And uh, John Quincy Adams is elected president uh, with the help of Henry Clay. And many people see this as even though even though Andrew Jackson had won the popular election. And many people see this as a as what they called the corrupt bargain. Mm. And Calhoun is one of those people. Calhoun thought that that um, that even though everything had happened constitutionally, uh, that that these two men had thwarted the will of the people, and he kind of moves into Andrew Jackson's camp, even though he is John Quincy Adams' uh, vice president. Hmm. Now he he's also vice president. You mentioned for Jackson too, but that relationship uh, had had its ups and its downs. Talk about that period. Yeah. So Jackson and um, Calhoun are quite close and political allies uh, throughout. Calhoun had been Jackson's um, superior, his boss, basically, when he was in the secretary, when he was in the War Department. And then they're close political allies, um, although there is always this ticking time bomb in their relationship, which is the fact that in, in a cabinet meeting, in Monroe's administration, uh, during the Seminole, when Jackson invades uh, Florida, basically, mm-hmm. <laughs> and uh, in this cabinet meeting, Calhoun had criticized Jackson and said that he had done it without orders, and that's a whole argument that historians have about whether Jackson had orders or not, and mm-hmm. um and Jackson didn't know about, and Calhoun never told him about this meeting and how Calhoun had criticized him. And so even as their political alliances is, is cemented uh, leading up to the 1828 election, there is this kind of ticking time bomb. And then after the election, uh, two things happen that, that fracture their relationship uh, irrevocably. First, um, there's the the famous Peggy Eaton affair in which Jackson's um, uh, one of the members of his cabinet, John Eaton, had married this woman, Peggy Eaton, who had a somewhat questionable reputation in Washington. And Floride Calhoun, Calhoun's wife, refuses to uh, visit to to pay a social call to the Eatons, which was mm-hmm. a snub. It was basically an insult, and. Jackson saw this uh, as an echo of the insults that he believed had killed his wife, Rachel, uh, Mm. during the election. So there had been all sorts of rumors about Jackson's wife uh, and uh, during the 1828 election. And uh, she had died right before he was elected. And Calhoun Jackson saw in Floride's snub of the Eaton's echoes of that kind of snobbery and rumors. Hmm. And he, uh, you know, he went ballistic over it. 
Uh, he held entire cabinet meetings where the only issue on the table was Peggy Eaton's reputation. And, uh, and Calhoun uh, was kind of stuck between his wife and Jackson. And that was the start of their uh, estrangement. But what put the nail in the coffin really was the, the tariff of 1828, uh, <clears throat> which is um, the tariff of 1828 became known as the tariff of abominations. Hmm. And it's in, in South Carolina, the, uh, the kind of radical wing of uh, politics in South Carolina began began advocating for uh, secession over this tariff, which they viewed as unconstitutional because it affected uh, agricultural or cotton growing parts of the country differently than manufacturing and commercial parts of the country. They viewed this as an, an unfair, unequal tax that violated the Constitution. They also viewed it as the beginnings of a possible national threat to slavery because it was it involved federal power. And essentially, Calhoun had to choose um, between his, his national ambitions and what was going on back in South Carolina. If he wanted to maintain a political base back in South Carolina, he had to come to terms with this, uh, with this radical opposition to the tariff. And he shared the constitutional view that it was um, that it was unconstitutional, but he also wanted to maintain his chance at the presidency and his influence on the on the national stage. And this is what leads him to his kind of first real um, uh, theoretical efforts, which is his his theories of nullification, which he lays out in a an anonymous document. And that he authors in 1828 called the South Carolina Exposition. That it is an attempt to find a constitutional way through the crisis and preserve his own political base back home and his national standing. Well, that was going to be my next question, actually. Talk about nullification and what is that doctrine? And then explain how that idea led into a very famous debate between Calhoun and Daniel Webster. Right. Yeah. So, so up until um, Calhoun wrote the South Carolina Exposition, there had been a couple uh, uh, precedents where people had argued that a state could interpose its authority between the federal government and its people. Most famously, Thomas Jefferson had done this in the resolution that he wrote for the Kentucky legislature in 1798 in opposition to John Adams' administration, which had passed the Alien and Sedition Acts. But Jefferson had never defined what he meant by interposition, and other people like John Taylor of Caroline, who also held the same doctrine, had not defined how it would work. Um, and then, then you had, outside of that, you had kind of two other extremes. You had the state's rights uh, advocates who said basically that the, the, the choice is between submission and secession, that there's no middle ground. Uh, and those people existed in plenty in South Carolina in the 1820s. And Calhoun is very familiar uh, with them. Um, and, then, and then on the opposite side, you had nationalists such as Daniel Webster by, by this time, although that's not where he had started out in national politics. But by this time, he's a strong nationalist who hold 
that the, that the government, um, that there has to be a cohesive national government that people have to obey that in order for the country to work. So Calhoun's theory is a really an attempt to th- thread a needle uh, through these things. And it, it is a radical theory because it would have changed fundamentally, although Calhoun never acknowledged this, it would have fundamentally changed the American system of governance uh, for good. And yet, uh, when you read it, what you can't help but be struck by is how Calhoun is able to work this out within the, the constitutional system that existed. So he believed that this option already existed constitutionally and that how it would work is that a state through a convention, which is how you know the people of a state were the original parties to the constitution, and uh, they would nullify a law, and this would set off a uh, a series of other state conventions in other states, which would also have to decide uh, on the same question. And if three quarters of the states uh, disagreed and expressly granted the power in question to the federal government, well, then the question was solved and a state had to decide whether or not it would follow that or secede. Um, But if a state could convince just a quarter of the other states to go along with it in its disagreement, then the issue was also over and they could continue not following the law. Um, And Calhoun uh, you know, in doing this, he's working off the theory that the original creative power in the Constitution, the people who ratified the Constitution are the people of the states, not the American people as a whole. And this is his famous debate with Daniel Webster. Once Cal- once South Carolina, once it comes out into the open that Calhoun is actually the author of the South Carolina Exposition and South Carolina in 1832 goes goes through and actually nullifies the tariff. Mm. And then in early 1833, as there's this standoff between Andrew Jackson, who's threatening to send federal troops into South Carolina and, uh, and South Carolina, Calhoun and Webster have this famous debate that's essentially over over who the people are in the American system of governance. Um, and Webster's position is that, uh, you know, the moment of Lockean consent, right? Locke's idea of the consent of the governed, mm-hmm. that that had happened once and for all when people ratified the Constitution, that the American people as a whole, not the people of the separate states, had ratified that Constitution. And therefore, the federal government had to be the, the last authority in the end. And that it, that it was that it was legitimate in in terms of Locke's conception of government and everything else, and Calhoun's argument was instead what became known as the compact theory of the Constitution, that essentially the Constitution was more like an agreement between sovereign nations, uh, maybe something like the European Union today, hmm. um, and that therefore states had reserved their own sovereignty and the ability to uh, judge the terms of this agreement for themselves. And uh, that anytime there was a fundamental disagreement, uh, a state convention, not the state legislature, but, but a state convention 
uh, could nullify a federal law and set off this process of forcing the rest of the states to renegotiate the terms of the compact. So for Calhoun, nullification was this way of constantly refining the system. That's how he saw it. He saw it as a progressive measure that would allow people to challenge and and expressly change the system uh, so that it was continually a system of what he would eventually call the concurrent majority, a consensus majority, and that that it never became, you know, simply a tyranny of the majority that people were locked into. Um, and uh, and yet he, he it's also clear that if if we had followed that, a it would have fundamentally changed how we understand uh, the American government and its and its functioning, and b. Uh, it might have been completely unworkable. (laughs) This is what people, I think, rightly mostly point out about it. It it could have been a recipe for perpetual deadlock, which um, some people, including Calhoun, might not have minded. Hmm. So by the 1830s, you note that Calhoun's uh, sense of the country had kind of darkened um, I guess talk about his maturing views during these during this decade, and and uh, especially his his views regarding slavery. This seems to be when those views really are uh, solidified in some way, or, or really come to the fore. Yeah, I think it 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 has a lot to do with his experience with the tariff, first of all, which he views as a a form of majoritarian tyranny. Right, mm-hmm. the, the, he sees. Uh, the ability of a, of the country to impose what he thinks is an unconstitutional tax that that affects one part of the country unequally. Uh, that this is an example of the tyranny of the majority, and this this gets him thinking about um, really what the nation is and and how the federal government should work. And nullification is one one part of that. But the thing that that then happens in the 1830s is the rise of a very energetic anti-slavery abolitionist movement. And so in quick succession, you have things like um, William Lloyd Garrison founds the Liberator in 1831. You have the Nat Turner Slave Rebellion, the arguably the largest, most successful slave rebellion in North American history in 1831. The founding of the American Anti-Slavery Society in 1833. Uh, Great Britain abolishes slavery throughout its uh, empire in 1833. And there's this growing wave of anti, a growing uh, surge of anti-slavery sentiment. Um, And Calhoun, who is already thinking in terms of the possibility that majorities could impose things on minorities that they didn't want sees in, the, in this a threat to, to slavery. And, um, and he begins, really commits the rest of his life to f- uh, fending off that claim, uh, closing off any constitutional avenues that might lead to a threat to his way of life um, and, and to slavery. And the culmination of that is really his 1837 speech uh, where he really revolutionizes the the argument about slavery and takes it from this old necessary evil argument that people like like Thomas Jefferson had made 
and instead crafts this much more aggressive political ideology that slavery is a, a positive good that is fundamentally suited for the modern world, for, for democracy, because it allows equality among white people, um, and for capitalism, because it resolves this tension that is emerging all over the world that, that people like Karl Marx are, are writing about, this tension between labor and capital. And for Calhoun, uh, Calhoun argues that slavery solves this because it unites the interests of labor and capital in the planter, in the person of, of the planter. And what, what underlays the entire theory and argument, of course, is uh, the assumption of the, in, the un- inferiority of black people, mm. the assumption that they are unfit for democracy um, and and therefore it's okay and even right and good for them. I mean, Calhoun argued it's beneficial for them as well that they're enslaved and not part of democracy. And in this sense, I argue in the book that Calhoun's argument is sort of a, a utilitarian argument, the, the bet, the, you know, the good for the most uh, sort of argument. Um, but it's under underwritten by these arguments about racial inferiority. And that becomes his reputation for the rest of his, uh, for the rest of his life. By the end of his life uh, in the book, I quote, there's a meeting of the Massachusetts Anti-Slavery Society in 1848 or 1849, where they call him the very embodiment of the slaveholding idea. Hmm. Uh, And when he makes this argument in 1837, it's a radical argument that even many of his fellow slaveholders don't assent to. But by 1860, um, it becomes one of the the founding assumptions of the confederacy hmm. so in the in the last decade decade of his life uh he really believed that america or at least a, i guess the republican vision of of america would would be destroyed by imperialist ambitions and it seems that he was somewhat prescient in that way wasn't he that that the jeffersonian ideal i mean it's always still a tension in american mm-hmm. life but but america certainly transformed in that decade through its imperial ambitions. Mm-hmm. Um, t- talk a bit about that last decade of his life. Yeah, so he's, um, Calhoun opposes the Mexican-American War when it breaks out, which is kind of surprising considering that he was a uh, one of the architects of the annexation of Texas, which set off the war. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, but he believes that it would be, uh, you know, he makes several famous speeches during the war at these moments where it's it's uh, it's kind of on the bubble whether the United States is going to stop uh, where it is or whether it's simply going to take all of Mexico, and uh, which is certainly what James Polk, the president, wanted to do. And Calhoun is one of the key figures that resists that uh, that movement. And I say in the book, it's. Um, uh, it is, uh, on the one hand, it's, it's, uh, kind of prescient of Calhoun that he says, look, our, our system of government cannot be an imperial system of government, right? Mm -hmm. We cannot be a government that has colonies and holds other peoples in subjection because that will weaken our own will to govern ourselves. And we can't extend to them 
the sorts of government that we that we enjoy for ourselves. Um, at the same time, there's also a a, a racial component to his uh, to his argument that. Uh, one of the reasons he doesn't believe that we can extend our form of government to Mexico is that they are racially different, hmm. and that 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 uh, uh, you know in one of his famous speeches he says ours is the government of the white man, and we can't export that because you know culturally, uh, racially, other people are not suited for it, and we also can't hold them in subjection because that would fundamentally damage our own uh our own form of government our own principles and those um and those sorts of things so he's a he is a paradoxical figure in that regard and and he he is uh he's happy to add texas and he's even happy to uh to have the united states take large amounts of land from uh mexico that that become California and much of the American West, um, but he is he is one of the key figures that stops James Polk from taking all of Mexico and and turning the U.S. into a kind of full fledged imperial power along the lines of Great Britain. Hmm. Well, I'm aware of our time and and uh, want to before we finish up though, I want to ask you one thing. Uh, I want to return to the title of your book, Calhoun. American heretic and heretic's a very unique. It's a very powerful word. Um, I admit that drew me to the book right away. So uh, well done on the title. What? Why use that word? What? Um, what, what exactly makes Calhoun an American heretic? Yeah. Well, I have to thank my editor Connor Guy for picking that phrase out of something I wrote and saying, "Hey, this would be a great title." Um, <laughs> but I think it gets at a couple different things. Uh, first of all, I wanted to kind of recover the sense that um, even in his own day, some people saw Calhoun in this way. Um, so in the book, I, I talk about the number of times that he's compared to the character of Milton Satan, right? That, that we mm -hmm. talked about at the beginning, mainly for his creative or diabolical constitutional theories, uh, take your pick. And of course, for his, um, for his really aggressive defense of slavery. So I think it accurately depicts how some people saw him at the time, although certainly not everybody. But then the other, the other thing is that I think it speaks to how Calhoun functions in our national uh, conversation today, mm -hmm. which is that we use Calhoun as a way to say what we are not. Uh, that we that by associating him with with the Confederacy, which uh, you know doesn't happen until a decade after he dies, and by associating him uh, with slavery, which we want we 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 kind of don't want to acknowledge that that has anything to do with modern America either. Maybe mm. um, that he's a he's this figure who, by declaring him a heretic, right by by taking him. Uh, his name off buildings and pulling down the statues to him. We're kind of trying to um, exercise uh, something from our, from our national identity. Hmm. And while in one sense, I, uh, I agree with, um, uh, with a lot of that in the sense that 
you know, I, I don't agree with uh, what Calhoun represents. I don't want a, a lot of those views to be part of modern America. I think it's also somewhat dangerous in that uh, we shouldn't forget how central he actually was to our to our history. And so um, I, I think the title in that sense is a little bit of a warning mm. that it's uh, it as we kind of declare him heretical and banish him from our uh, from who we are as a nation, we also shouldn't forget that uh, he was he was fundamental to uh, to who we are today in a lot of ways. Hmm. Well, Dr. Eldo, thanks so much for the time today, and thank you for uh, an amazing book. I, it really is quite an accomplishment, and it it deserves all the attention that I am sure it is going to get. So, so well done. Thanks so much, Lane. Great talking to you. Well, Dr. Robert Elder is the author of Calhoun, American Heretic. It is out in February of 2021 from Basic Books. Uh, Definitely uh, make sure that you pick up a copy. It is uh, well worth the read. And thanks so much for listening to New Books in History. Uh, We hope that you've enjoyed this podcast and make sure to subscribe wherever it is that you get your podcasts, Spotify, iTunes, all the major platforms uh, to keep up with all of the best books that are coming out today. Thanks so much for joining us and we will catch you next time. Thank you.